the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Good evening. Uh, special hello those listening live. Just a reminder, another one that the shows Saturday and Sunday night are all available via a podcast. Okay, coming up later on this hour, um, Max Cryer answering your questions on words. If you've asked what on earth a Pollyanna is or what we mean when we call someone a Pollyanna, or if you've asked about the word crud, or if you've asked about the word gaslighting, as I think a verb, or most things with I-N-G-R, except lightning. Okay, uh, the tonight's your night. Max will be answering your questions. He's just a tremendous scholar in a sport. We three kings of the Hester Square Selling ladies' underwear How fantastic, no elastic Not very safe to wear Hey! On tomorrow night, we'll be announcing another recipient, a winner of the luxury flights and hotel accommodation to the Documentary Edge Festival. Uh, I think the Auckland one is already underway in Wellington. Um, they're generous and wonderful people, and it's a great festival every single year. Hats off. Which is the subject of our next feature. James Groot will delve into uh, some more from the Documentary Edge Festival. We're having a look at Let's Talk About Sex. I actually talked with the directors. Uh, that'll be tomorrow evening. All right, we'll see what James Groot thinks of it after this commercial break. Good evening. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute is here and we're about to kick off the uh, Documentary Edge Festival. It's happening in Wellington. Uh, not Well, it's underway in Wellington. It is underway. Yeah, yep. pardon me. Uh, that's going to the 20th of May. It begins in Auckland on the 23rd, uh, so there is the bulk of it to go even in Wellington. So we're still having a dip into these. And I'm going to have a few guests in a couple of weeks. Apologies to Wellington, but I can get, them, get the guests and directors when they're in Auckland. So they're not in Auckland for the Wellington release, so pardon, pardon me. A withering apology, but we're going to have them anyway. And this is what we're for tonight, uh, James, to give people a heads up on uh, what's, what's in here. What have you seen? Um, well, let's start with uh, one of the ones that's already had a wee bit of publicity before it uh, has its debut, which is, I think its debut is something like Wednesday next week in Wellington, and then, of course, Auckland later on. Let's talk about sex. Oh, I'll pull you up right there. I'm not meaning to pull you up, but I'm, I, I actually I am. I do have the makers of that, the director and presenter. Um, they're going to be interviewed in some depth tomorrow evening. Exactly what time? I'll just have a look now at my schedule. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I'll put them on the Barbie and grilled them. Let's talk about sex. That's after 10 o'clock tomorrow evening. Oh, it needs to be, definitely, doesn't it? Nah. <laughs> Look, uh, I mean, it's, it, you know, we've we've had various looks at, uh, you know, Kiwi attitudes to sex and that kind of thing. There was a very good um, documentary series on censorship that primed it a few years ago, a New Zealand on Air thing. I mean, this, this is... Uh, 
Auckland desperate real housewife Julia Sloan, the Sloan Ranger herself, mm. um, tackling the subject. And, and interestingly, I quite like where the, the starting point for it, which is talking to her parents about you know what their attitudes were, and amazingly how. Um, outdated their attitudes are, or you know, yeah, in, certainly in terms of um, homosexuality and things like that. You know, can't can't abide a pride parade, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, um, and but the see the point there is it is obviously a rare and it, it's not in um, it's not applauded in polite society. It's almost universally decried. Um, so why is that a problem? Yeah, I, I, I think it. I think what it highlights is really the generational shift yeah. in people's uh, inclusion of diversity. But I think perhaps one of the most telling comments. But hang on, I do one other thing to say about, and I do bring it up with them tomorrow night. There are plenty of old people that are gay. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. That's so true. I think I think one of the most telling comments, and I can't remember which of the the many myriad of people that uh, she interviewed as part of this, who bring it up. But basically, she said, "How can New Zealanders sort of uh, claim to have dealt with diversity and and sexuality and all its different forms when we can't even talk about the thing in in, in you know normal plain vanilla terms? Yeah, you know we get all a bit." all a bit bashful and want to beat around the bush and that kind of thing. Oh, good um, one, James. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also I think it's interesting where our censorship lies in comparison to, say, Australia and America and Britain. Yeah. There's a classic example of one that just came out this week. There's a horror movie currently out called Truth or Dare. It's one of those teen movies. The Aussies rated it M. It's, it's got a lot of sort of horrific scenes involving uh, immolation and people being punished for things, you know, for no reason at all. They rated them. The Brits went with a 15. So our, so our census office was advised, maybe you want to take another look at this just rather than, um, you know, taking the Aussies thing. Right. And... Um, and they came back thinking it needed to be an R13. Flip side of that, there was a documentary about body image. Uh, was it last year? I think it might have been the year before at the New Zealand International Film Festival, all about body image. It had a large number of uh, naked female bodies as part of it. The Aussies wanted to ban it. You oh, know, no. Keep it away from kids. So our uh, census office took another look and decided that, well, no, actually, we, we, we don't think this is uh, prudent in any means. In fact, it's kind of central to this whole discussion that, that this documentary is trying to, um, you know, talk about and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have a, it seems we have a slightly more liberal attitude than the Australians, but we st I, I guess we have a kind of cringe factor, don't we, that we yeah. don't really want to talk about it. And I think that's one of the funniest things with this documentary is how... Despite meeting all these very open and interesting people, you still sense that Julia Slow looks very uncomfortable. Exactly, <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, come on, so funny. come on, lady, you're doing a documentary about sex. Um, I, here she is. I've just got a little cut here because I did the interview with them, and it's on tomorrow night after ten. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've got some spare cuts uh, from the movie. Here's her at a sex shop uh, being introduced to a butt plug, a large one. Got lots of lube. You'll be fine. And this is meant to look cute. Yeah, it can be a little box for it. <laughs> Why not, right? Or, if you're really game, like you've graduated from that, that one up the top there. No one would use that, surely. You'd be surprised. Really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a statutory visit to a sex shop.
Uh, and then, of course, uh, she goes and visits uh, the... Was it Fun House, I think it is? One of Wellington's most famous uh, establishments and meets the madam there who uh, offers her a caning. <laughs> yeah, she's got a great book, actually, uh, Mary Brennan. She's, yeah. uh, she's an, an intelligent and, um, I, I think, a thoroughly decent individual. I think more than anything else, I don't know whether it was an intentional, but this is a great kind of celebration of Kiwi women yeah. and Kiwi female businesswomen yeah. who've seen a gap. I mean, I love this pole dancing uh, establishment oh. in the middle of Waitara. Yeah, yeah, fair Brilliant. enough. That's good. Um, yeah, there was quite, yeah, it, it generally happens. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is skewed towards women and what women want, and yeah. and uh, there are men in this equation. I, yeah, I, I think it's interesting the couple of men that she does talk to, and there's really only one who puts himself on camera and allows himself to be filmed, but it's a, it's a guy who's come up with this VR experience, virtual reality experience, yeah. and he looks, he seems quite sheepish about the whole thing. He's you know? being filmed! He's certainly, certainly the complete opposite to a Steve Crow kind of character yeah. anyway. He's this, this guy who has a garage and is uh, clearly a quite brilliant inventor, but he's kind of like, yeah, well, you know... <laughs> There you go. I've invented this thing that allows people to have virtual reality sex. But, yeah, you know. it's difficult to find the right register when talking about this um, because nobody really likes to think about other people having sex or watching porn. Yeah, well, that's, that's it, isn't it? But, you know, I certainly think it's an interesting thing, although, you know, just at times it feels like one of those episodes of Rachel Hunter's Tour of Beauty that yeah. perhaps didn't quite make the watershed. Yeah. Oh, did you hear about the elbowgasm? Oh, yes. Yeah, though, oh, yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll leave that. Um, anything else you want to say before I, I give a Christopher Hitchens cu- quote? <laughs> Go on, give you Christopher Hitchens quote. All, all right. Um, he was interviewed pretty much just before he curled up his toes and died. He, he just pulled out all the stops. I don't know how he did it. He did so many interviews uh, on his deathbed, basically. And someone asked him about, um, he, he'd written about American women. And... I mean, this is just his perspective, but it's a really interesting one, and of course he's always eloquent. You remind me of what you also say. It's about, and you use the word, girls, women in America being forward. Mm. (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, this I actually discovered in London for myself, that there was something different about American womanhood. Martin Amis in The Pregnant Widow most recently has sort of speculated that the, the real sexy ability of a woman can be defined as how much she can think like a man. Not in all things, but in the sexual relation. She can kind of picture what a man might be thinking. Very important. It seems to me American women were kind of born with that. Um, and so had ideas of their own and would even make suggestions. Um, you see me now, the slightly faded figure of a formerly magnificent mammal primate. Um, but I used, to, I used to have a really English reticence in that respect. I would always hope someone else would make the first move. I'd like to, or if I was going to make it, that somehow it had been cleared in advance. <laughs> in, a, in a wonderful unspoken way, American women seem to sort of allow you to skip that stage. <laughs> but, I, but the word English rose still 
makes me contract <laughs> and, re and retract as well, I have to say. It still does. All right. <laughs> I just love that quote. Um, and uh, that's, that's a, that's a make-up for um, the, the, the skew of the documentary, which is a fun watch anyway. I've got really nothing against it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now, Edible Paradise, Growing the Food Forest Revolution. This I haven't seen. Yeah, it's an interesting... I mean, the interesting part for me, obviously, was it's all about uh, the idea of uh, what to do with some of the red zone land that we have here in Christchurch. Ah. Um, and, um, yeah, this idea of uh, food forests, which are essentially community gardens, but with um, using fruit trees which I think is quite a clever idea, really, because, you know, once a fruit tree gets established, it's uh, pretty much fairly reliable in terms of being able to feed a community from year to year. Um, so, yeah, this kind of looks at, uh, looks at the experience of various projects around the country to do with food forests and, and the fight, I guess, to get kind of land, you know, suitable and, and to be able to be used. But, but also uh, it provides a, an exemplar for, for how they could do it in Christchurch. And, and I believe that there is a, a food forest not too far away from uh, my office in the middle of town, which is going quite well. Oh, OK. Yeah, I nice. mean, it's, it, it's interesting. I, I think it was one of the first cases where the government actually uh, put, put this land aside and said, OK, you can do this, you know? Essentially putting government land, as, well, government-acquired land aside for a community garden, which is kind of rare. Yeah, community gardens are great. Although when you're planting a lot of fruit trees, I, I just people think this is a solution to. Um, so I think it's a nice idea. Um, should we ask the fruit growers well, <laughs> when they've <laughs> sacked their employees because everyone's eating free fruit or something? I I don't know. It probably won't make any impact whatsoever, and it's a nice idea, so it's all good. But as a general policy, I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, no, it's hard to know. Yeah. But an interesting watch, particularly if you're of the greeny variety, has to be oh, said. Okay, good one. Now, dare, dare we talk about To Be or Not To Be, Graham? The oh. Luke Hurley documentary. Oh, this is only five minutes long, though, isn't it? The Luke Hurley yeah, one? Yeah, it's, it's a little short one, but it's a, it's an interesting look at, uh, what, one of New Zealand's most famous buskers? Would yeah. that be? Uh, he turns a, up in all sorts of places. Yeah, I've seen him turn up everywhere. Yeah, look, it's an interesting look, uh, Adam. I mean, he's one of those guys who has just been around the, the, the New Zealand live music scene, I guess, for what, almost four decades now, would yep. have to be? Yep. Yep, staple of the Otago, staple of the university sort of uh, um, orientation week circuit, it would have to be said. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. And his, it, his one famous song is that, I'm in love with the Mona Lisa. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. So that's, that's that's an interesting one. It is part of a, as you say, part of a short documentary uh, uh, program of two or three. We must also just mention, of course, Spielberg again, which is um, going to be uh, in a couple of weeks now. And, and of course, if you missed um, the documentary on Stan Walker that played on TV3 a couple of months ago, there's a chance to see it as part of the Documentary Edge Festival as well, mm. right, which okay. is well worth checking out in terms of music kind of stuff. One that I'm interested, and I have to admit, I haven't had a chance to see, but I put this on people's radars because it really does appeal to me, and I promise I will try and see it next week. Bar Talks by Schumann. It's all about a legendary cocktail maker, a guy called Charles Schumann, who sort of goes through the most fascinating bars in the world and exploring the sort of secrets of bar culture. Oh, yeah. And that, yeah, it, it kind of Anthony, Anthony Bourdain style? 
Yeah. Well, he's 75, yeah. and he's originally from southern Germany and worked as a border guard. But then, after all that, he sort of spent a lot of time in discos and bars, oh. sort of running them and, and that kind of thing. But, yeah, so he goes to places New York, Paris, Havana, and Tokyo. Okay. Just looking at how different countries have different bar cultures. I, I mean, you know, I wonder if a Harvey Warbanger is available in uh, a typical Q, a Tokyo bar or something like that. Yeah, yeah, or Saudi Arabia. You'd have to go behind. <laughs> in, in, uh, sorry. Um, okay, yeah, I've got a whole bunch of uh, interviews coming up next week for some uh, relevant things. These people with their plane that flew around the world on sunshine and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff as well. So uh, keep an ear out. And, of course, we've just started getting the first announcements for the uh, New Zealand International Film Festival as well. Which oh, is, yes. Uh, yeah, this quite is... exciting. Yeah. Um, documentary on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which I hear has been getting great things, as well as uh, Pietra Brett Kelly's new documentary all about a uh, young Chinese designer. Yeah. Well, I don't think she's that young, actually, but, but just this, this, you know, person from behind the communist regime who's suddenly trying to make it in the big world of haute couture in Paris. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm trying to um, nail an interview with the uh, one of the presenters of A Murder in Mansfield. That looks really good, where uh, a son is interviewing his dad about did he do it or didn't he? It's... Whoa. All right. Okay. Um, thank you very much, James. No and, worries. And uh, we'll talk again probably... Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to have a ton of stuff coming up shortly, as I said, but uh, we'll we'll keep going on the Dock Edge Vessel. There's plenty, plenty to go through. And Absolutely. We'll get something a few more. Yeah. Yep. Good one. Brilliant. Cheers. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Enter online for a VIP experience. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort. Words Our weekly delve into the English language, where it's come from, why it's shaped the way it is, why it's a beautifully weird and complicated monster of a thing. Max Cryer, hello. Hello. Good evening. If you want to ask Max a question about this subject, you can ask via email. Go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's an email form there. Uh, you can ask on Facebook if you like. There's a happy community of people, or an interesting community of people. Happy most of the time. Uh, and you can also write. You just got some mail today, Max, some snail mail. You can... This will prove that it works, because I'll read out the address on the front of it. P.O. Box 8880, Simon Street, Auckland, 1010. P.O. Box 8880, Simon Street, Auckland, 1010. Okay, Max, what's in your inbox this week? Oh, we've got our Word of the Week first. Yes, Word of the Week is, well, it's, the word so much is pretty well self-explanatory, but it's the use of it that I'm going to speak about. The Word of the Week is Wedding March. Mm. Now, probably there'll be over a million brides who've come down the aisle of their wedding to this stately tune, and we're going to know next week if another famous wedding uses this familiar melody, immediately identified as Here Comes the Bride. Oh. And the more knowledgeable will tell their neighbour in the church, it's from Wagner's opera Lohengrin. Well, yes, the tune is from Wagner's opera Lohengrin, 1850, but... Can you get German? Wagner, Wagner would be seriously surprised to hear it being played before the wedding ceremony takes place. 
Wagner's famous melody, which I think everybody in the English-speaking world knows the melody. The, the, Is it the fair, fat and wide one? That's, well, that's your version. Here <laughs> comes the bride, fair, fat and wide. Thank you very much, Graham. Lovely. Now, that famous tune that Graham just sang for you, it does not occur in the opera when the bride is approaching her prospective husband. In the opera, from which that song comes, the famous melody comes after the wedding ceremony, as the lady attendants escort the newly married bride to the wedding bedroom, they sing, advising her of the earthly joys which await her there when she joins her new husband. Now the vows have been said, the ceremony is over, now the pleasures of consummation await her. Well, the... the Good God, that's getting a bit, a bit close for comfort, Max. Well, that's what it's, what's happening in the opera. That's what, oh, okay. The, the lady, after the after the wedding, they leave the altar, the ladies escort her to the bedroom. Oh. Now, it didn't seem... She, she's not leading them to the... The tune is not leading them to the altar. It's leading them to a bed, to put it bluntly. Now, it didn't seem to bother Queen Victoria, because she started the whole thing off. In 1858, which was eight years after the opera was first heard, Queen Victoria and her daughter, Princess Victoria, started one more worldwide custom. Uh, Victoria herself had already started one. She married in February 1840, which is why she was so busy she never saw the Treaty of Waitangi. But she wore white to her wedding, which was most unusual. In that century, young women were usually married in colours, but when the Queen wore white, it fired off a trend which remains to this very day. And when the Queen's daughter married in 1858, using Wagner's tune as the bride's entrance to the wedding, this also was regarded as royal approval, and the custom took hold, and so to this very day, a white wedding dress and Wagner's tune are closely associated with the wedding ceremony. Now... Even after the time that Princess Victoria used it, which was 1858, at, at her wedding, it, it gradually went into worldwide use. But it's not clear that the Wagnerian tune had a name. But in 1915, a woman called Shannon Fife, who was a writer of American movie scripts, came up with a love story. In 1915? 1915. 1915 movie was, scripts, wow. Yes, and she came up with a love story for a movie involving an eventual marriage, and for some unknown reason, she entitled the script and the movie which resulted, Here Comes the Bride. Now, almost instantly, the term went into universal use to name this tune that people were now using all over the place on the way to the altar. Although... Graham, as I think you perceived and were, were disciplined enough not to interrupt, the movie which launched the title was, of course, silent in 1915. So although she used the title, mm. nobody heard the music. However... Um, oh, of course. Shannon Five. Well, if we just have a little imagine there, how would we know what to imagine if it was a silent movie? Well, you could see a picture of a bride wearing a white frock walking up to the altar. How did you know the music was there? There was no music in silent movies, Graham. They didn't That's have what sound. I'm saying. They didn't have, have I missed a meeting, listeners? No, not, no, 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 not at all. She called the movie Here Comes the Bride, but there was no connection with Wagner. It just dawned on people that this was a very convenient phrase, and the title caught on very quickly. It's been used ever since as the title for a play, a musical, several more movies, and the words were set to music for the first time in 1937. A sheet music edition was published with new, with pleasant words written by Mr. V. G. Ganiva. 
And the words, of course, were geared to the modern misconception that Wagner was taking the bride to the altar. Right. When, in fact, he wasn't. He was taking her away. He was proceeding, the ladies who sang it were proceeding with the bride away from the altar to what we could delicately call the next stage. Right, horizontal rumpty-pumpty. I never said that. Um, okay. Here comes... So he put words to it. Did he use fair, fat and wide? Mr. Geneva certainly didn't say fair, fat and uh, wide. Oh. You did, but then you're not a famous screen uh, music writer. No, I'm not. <laughs> Here comes... Oh, and it's Mendelssohn, the other one, isn't it? That's when they... When they're leaving. Mm. Well, that is actually intended as a, that's the bridal march. That is a, yeah. a, a signifying march of the bridal couple. Mm. But here comes the bride. It's a good bride. melody. It, uh, Mendelton was, uh, had cracking melodies. Well, Wagner didn't do so badly. No, no, I didn't say he did. No. Don't straw man me, Max. <laughs> I don't know what don't straw me means. Okay. Um, there are a lot of things we don't really know what they mean or why we say them as they are. And that's the sort of questions we get in the mailbox. And Max is dealing with the word dank. D-A-N-K. Yes, the question was where does the word come from? Um, it's come into prominence in the last few weeks because a beer firm is trying to trademark the word dank. Really? Yes. And that's a delicate matter because if you trademark a word... Uh, then nobody else can use it without either a court order or paying a fee. Mm. That, but, of course, it has to be trademarked to a certain trade. Like, we can all say dank every day if we like, because it's not trademarked to anything. But if the beer company trademarked dank beer, then we couldn't, we couldn't call anybody else's beer dank. But does the word have a meaning, asked the listener. Well, yes. Um, this listener must have had a very happy, comfortable life because he's never come across the word dank because it means... Wet and oozy and probably smelly, like unwholesome, muddy land. And the word came into English from across the channel. It's derived from the Swedish word dunk, meaning a marsh or a swamp. Why it is projected as being a possible trademark for a beer is beyond me. Yeah. Because the word dank seems to have a more negative image than a positive one. But I know nothing about selling beer. I just know what the listener asked. Where does the word come from? They're selling beer called dank. Why not call it diarrhea or something really appealing? Yes, that would be very fascinating, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mind you, though, sometimes those peculiar things do work the other way. Yeah, Like the more true. bizarre something is, people will be amused. Yeah, it's how the, the word sick meant really, really good yes, in yes, Australia. Yes, right, yes. And Michael Jackson turned the word bad into meaning really quite good. Yes, yes, you're right. We oh. could do a whole session on those back-to-front words. We could. I no, think another, another nightly four-hour program. I think diarrhoea could be a hard one. Oh. Could be. Um, yeah, the, I'll just tell you, Mr Lawrence of Upper Hutt, we have your mail for Max. Thank you. And he's put it in his bag, and we'll get his snoot into the books. Okay, let's go to Pollyanna. When someone is called a Pollyanna, now that's a proper name. Um, what is someone describing that person as when they use this proper name and why that name? That's exactly what the listener asked. You know, that he knows of someone who is referred to as a Pollyanna and he wanted to know how did that happen. Well, the name describes a girl with certain qualities and it dates back to an extraordinary book, an extremely famous book written by Eleanor Porter. It was published in 1913 and the story is about a young girl called Pollyanna and she was a young optimistic girl who was tragically orphaned and sent to live with her grumpy aunt. 
but the girl's sunny disposition ends up changing the whole town's point of view through her ever-present optimism. Now, with this lively optimism and her sunny personality and sincere, sympathetic soul, Pollyanna brings so much gladness to her aunt's dispirited town that she transforms it into a pleasant place to live. Now, the original book was an enormous success and 14 more Pollyanna books were written, some by other authors, some by the original. Now, the character of Pollyanna was created and depicted as having an amazing positive style and her childlike philosophy of life centered on what she called the glad game. Now the glad game was a creating an optimistic positive attitude no matter how a situation was bleak. You had to find something about that bleak situation to be glad. Example, one Christmas when Pollyanna was hoping for a doll in the lucky dip, instead she pulled out a pair of crutches. So Pollyanna decided she was glad about having got the crutches because this meant that whoever had donated them didn't need them anymore. Now the, the glad game shielded Pollyanna from the unwelcome sternness of her aunt. Uh, aunt Polly put her into a stuffy attic room without carpets or pictures, but Pollyanna said she was glad because the room had such a wonderful view. And when she was punished for being late home for dinner, uh, aunt sent her to sit in the kitchen to, to eat bread and milk with the servant. But Pollyanna said thank you. She was glad because she likes bread and milk and she likes the servant. <laughs> but alas, it, was, it has to be acknowledged that during and after 15 books portraying this ever-effervescent optimism and the glad game, there were those, and this is where we're getting to the listener's question, there were those who began to perceive her character as excessively or blindly optimistic and actually rather cloying. Mm. So, and naive, perhaps. if a girl of the listener's acquaintance is referred to as a Pollyanna, or she may be a valuable optimist, nice to have around, good fun, encouraging and happy, or she possibly could be unreasonably and illogically optimistic, which can be seen as somehow lacking a sense of reality. Bloody I, annoying. <laughs> well, I don't know which of those two would apply to the girl the listeners knows. He didn't say so. Mm. I'm just explaining the meaning of the term and how it can be used two different ways. Nicely done, Max. Thank you. Uh, we'll take a short intermission and you can get an ice cream. And we'll come back and continue with Max Cryer answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Max Cryer's here. We're answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Is it next Saturday, the, the royal wedding of one of the kids of Elizabeth, isn't it? Oh, no. no. Of Diana. Yes. Yeah. Harry. Prince Henry. Oh, Really? Another French name. <laughs> I don't know where you got that from. <laughs> Look at it, from the bloody Normans. <laughs> well, I think Henry VIII had it quite a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, well, this Henry the First. He was the son of William the... What's it? William the Bastard. He was well known as. William the Bastard? Yes. Oh, I see. Hmm. Or Norman the Conqueror. Because this couldn't happen anymore because um, that's why Edward VIII... Yes, I mean, the whole problem about having a child out of an approved wedlock, I don't yeah. think could take over the throne now. No, not, no, not these days. No, no, it was no. a problem for um, uh, a lot of the royals. But you said Edward VIII. See, yes. he's Edward the Eleventh. 
Uh, well, he never made it. Oh, but he... he for, for a few months only. My point being, Edward VII was Edward X. Oh, I see. There You've were ten, doing... ten of them. Ah. Why, not, why don't they count the others? I why? I have no idea. Graham. I want someone to answer that question, well, please. Write to Buckingham Palace and ask them. I will. Yes. Alfred the Great Son, Edward the Elder, then this Edward Martyr, yes. and then this Edward the Confessor. That's three. Yes. And then Edward the First, Henry the Third's son. What? The listeners and I will await the answer from Buckingham Palace, and you, you can tell us why. It's yet another one of these things. Okay, uh, somebody has asked the, about the word crud. Where does crud come from? Crud? What does it mean, asked the listener. Where does it come from? Well, I confess a certain liking for the word crud, um, which when you know what it means, and I do use it sometimes, there's a certain satisfa satisfaction. It's brief, mm. and it's got a quite ugly sound. It's generally a put-down. And the word crud carries all those images with it somehow, because crud means filth, excrement, undesirable foreign matter. It's hundreds of years old, and the scholars are of the opinion that the word came into existence by deliberately reversing the middle of the word curd. Oh! Where curd is something quite desirable, especially in medieval times. It sometimes does happen that putting a word or part of a word back to front is a kind of insult. And the original word remains recognisable, but now in a put-down, opposite kind of way. So the backwards meaning indicates that something is despicable and desirable, mm. and it becomes crud. Simple as that. That's the only reason any scholars can come up with. Okay. Uh, now, gaslighting. This is a famous word. Needs describing what it means first. It's, it's, a, a, it's a verb. It's a hard one, actually. And uh, we had it a couple of years ago referring to a New Zealand politician. But now, a listener noticed the term being used in a, one of the hundreds of newspaper reports speculating about the royal family. And the word was used somewhere in connection with Prince Harry's cousins, Princesses Eudenie and Beatrice, the two princesses. Now, let us define gaslighting. Gaslighting is defined as someone engineering a situation whereby the blame is put on someone else. The gaslighter tells mistruths, manipulates the other person into tries to get power over someone by making the victim think he or she is crazy. Mm. Now, the gaslighter will try to disturb a person or situation by sowing seeds of doubt in the mind of the individual. Oh, you've said that. Sorry, Max, you've just repeated yourself. Well, the, the, they're hoping to make the person question their own memory, mm. their perception or their sanity. Oh, uh, you've just said it again, Max. What? Perception you just repeated yourself. Did I? See, I'm <laughs> gaslighting you. I'm <laughs> gaslighting you. You're gaslighting. That's, that's what you do. You said that five times now, Max. That's a perfect example of gaslighting. You're very good. Very clever. Right. The use of persistent denial, misdirection, contradiction, and playing around with the truth... Nurse! ...attempts to affect the target's stability and to doubt the legitimacy of what they've believed. Now, let's go back to its origin. The term gaslighting originated from an extremely successful play, 1938, called Gaslight, and an even more successful film, 1944, an outrageously successful film. Now, the play in the film was set in 1880, and they showed a husband attempting to convince his wife and other people that she is insane. And to do this, he manipulated small things around their environment and insisted that she was mistaken or that she was remembering things incorrectly or having delusions when he points out these changes. The connection with gaslighting comes from the husband's habit of secretly causing the gas lights in the house to dim 
Then when his wife comments on it, he convinces her she's imagining it. And amongst similar deceptions, gradually causes his wife to have a breakdown. So the term gaslighting arose from that play. It spread into general use, and it's now actually used in clinical and research literature and political commentary, and when people are writing about um, Prince Andrew's daughters, Princess Eugenie and Princess Beatrice. What are they saying about them? Well, I, I skim read the article because there's so much of it going on, I can't take in the details, but apparently Prince Andrew's daughters, who are princesses, oh. are not all that keen on the girl Markel, who is not a princess. Oh, they don't have to go. Oh, no, well, that, well, you're on the right track. I mean, so they're, they're sort of being a bit, I think the fashionable word is snarky. Ooh! We have royal snark as snark in the house. All right, Max. Very good. Thank you. Marvellous. It's a tricky one. Gaslighting is not easy to explain. I hope the listener got the hang of that. Oh, you said that again, Max. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start on you. Listeners, what are we going to do about him? It's Shall terrible, move, isn't it? Shall we move on to Hokey Pokey? Oh, you got, ho I, you got Hokey Pokey there. I haven't got it. Well, Hokey Pokey was a question which seems to indicate that something's wrong or it's shady. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a person says there's some hokey-pokey going on here. Oh. It indicates interference or behaviour of a doubtful legality. Um, as far as anyone knows, it goes back to the phony Latin term hocus-pocus. Oh. Hocus-pocus isn't Latin, it's phony, because it, it was made up, um, invented by theatre magicians as a sort of incantation to herald that something magical was about to occur. And from there on, things are not totally clear, but it's thought that hocus-pocus came to mean nonsense. It had a couple of variations. The Irish immigrants to America used hokey to mean fake or unreliable. And the German settlers to USA, whom the English settlers derided, the non-German settlers called the German settlers hoch, oh. pronounced hoch. Um, and this was done satirically, not meaning that the Germans were high and mighty, which is what hoch means, but rather lowly and dumb. So the word, American word hokey, came to mean countrified. Ah. Oh. Countrified. And that was reinforced by a general derision for country bumpkins from Oklahoma, known as okies. Oh, I'm an okie from Muskogee. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, it began to... Be applied to um, confectionery, and then a dance arose. Now, Graham. Oh, here it comes. Can you tell me the name of that dance? The hokey cokey. That's the one. Sometimes well, you put your left leg in. You put your left leg in, and your left leg out, and it has the instructions in the words. Yes, handy that, isn't it? You put your left leg back, and you shake it all about. It's like now, reading the assembly instructions for an IKEA. Um, well, it was, it was called the Hokey Tokey or the Hokey Cokey. Oh. And you put your right hand in, put your right hand out. It was enormously popular. I think it's faded away a bit now. So, amidst all of this mess that I've been talking about, the only constant thing is that the origin of Hocus Pocus is a made-up phrase indicating mystery and an indication that the eye might see the magician do something which looked real but actually wasn't real. And it's not from Latin. It was made up. So from there on, various versions of the term became modified into related terms which sound the same and usually indicates that something's wrong, something's mm. not quite what it should be. Now, we haven't even got to the ice cream. No, no, well, it was uh, cheap. That was because it was a cheap imitation. Um, it was called Hokey Pokey Ice Cream. That's quite right. Yeah. Mm. That was in New York. Oh. Now, we have a, an interesting anniversary coming up the day after tomorrow. Oh, yes. Monday, May the 14th. I didn't know this, and I was quite intrigued. Monday, May the 14th is believed to be the 148th anniversary of 
Could you possibly guess? No, uh, 148th. 148th anniversary of the first ever rugby match played in New Zealand. It happened because an ex-pupil of Nelson College, Charles Monroe, came back to Nelson after being in England for some time, and while he was there, he was party to the development of rugby in Britain because he left Britain in 1870 when the development of rugby was becoming um, very quite powerful. But when he got back to Nelson, he found the lads of Nelson College were playing a sort of mixture of what was called old-fashioned folk football. Oh. And he felt the need to bring them up to date with what was happening and developing in England. So, on May the 14th, 1870, having retrained the local players in the developed style, there was an organised match between Nelson College and Nelson Club, thought to be the first ever rugby match in New Zealand. 1870, huh? Yes, yeah. Okay. 148 one. years ago. Right. OK. Max, thank you very much. If you would like to ask Max a question along these lines... You can send an email from the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It's all clearly indicated there. I'll leave a message on Facebook or write, as Mr Lawrence of Upper Hutt did, to P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland 1010. OK. Uh, between 11 o'clock and 12 tonight, we're delving into uh, probably a dud album. I uh, wouldn't bother listening. Um, it's the Rolling Stones, Some Girls. Although it did have a couple of hits on it, one especially big, which everybody recognises. more from said record between 11 o'clock and 12. I think Grunt Smithies and myself are diametrically opposed. Dan thing gave me a headache. He reckons it's got some goodies on it. I'll, I'll turn him round, shall I? 
From 1978, the Rolling Stones album, Some Girls. New sport and weather up next. Good evening.